couple guys will be handing out your notes that we will use in the service today. As they're handing out the notes, if you'll turn to James chapter 1, that's where we're going to be today. James chapter 1. The title of today's message is, um, Help, I Need Healing. How to Heal Past Wounds for Abundant Living. Someone said to me recently, they were uh, talking to me, they said, from your particular theological persuasion, you don't believe in healing, do you? And I said, I most certainly do. And uh, I'm so convinced that the Lord can heal. Uh, I thought I was going to need it last weekend. Uh, as we were heading down the mountain from a wonderful wedding that we were able to see, uh, I forgot and wasn't paying attention to one of those, uh, you know, those bead bumps I have going down through there. That We have a few different ones. And uh, I was in my Dodge Charger, and I'm thankful there's angels because they helped me land. I missed one of them, didn't realize it was there. And uh, I'm pretty sure all four wheels left the ground. And uh, Brandon was in front of me, and I said, Well, Lord, he'll either be preaching a funeral or he's going to do a resurrection. I don't know which it is. And uh, thankfully, I landed safely. I think I said a Dukes of Hazzard yee-haw somewhere in the air as I was coming back down amidst praying as well. So I do believe the Lord heals. And a lot of times that when we're walking in the world that we live in, we have pains that hurt us along the way. And that's what we're going to look at today. As we get into this, I, I want to share with you a few items, uh, just some updates for you uh, real quick. What's going on in our ministry? I know many of you partner with us here. I'm so thankful for what you're doing with us and uh, the ministry that I'm a part of, Christian community that I lead. I just want to put this up here. In this year, this is uh, what's been happening. I know a lot of you helped me when I went to India. We've now got two seminaries that are w working in India now, one in Karnataka, Bangalore area where I went, and we're just now getting ready to start another one in Odisha. My brother Prasad there is helping us with that one. And then we're starting another one, Harvest Bible Institute, in, uh, there in Africa, in Malawi, led by Maston. And then also Grace Bible Institute has joined us in Nigeria, led by uh, Pastor Joseph there. So a lot of good things are developing there. You go to the next slide, um, you can see also something else that I'd like for you to be praying about as we talk about trials and ministry and the things that we face and struggles. Uh, we've got a major blessing that the Lord has laid in our laps. Our board members will be voting on that pretty soon in the Christian community. Uh, just want to praise the Lord with the people here today. Look at this. A retired Lutheran minister down here on the bottom with the guy there at the little um, truckster uh, met some of our ministers down there, and he sent word back to us. He said, I have 10 acres of land. I'm, I don't have any children, retired Lutheran minister, and I would like to donate that to your ministry up there so you all can help build a seminary and a Bible college down here in Tanzania. 10 acres of land free in Africa. Isn't that amazing? I just want to say thank you, Lord Jesus, for what he's doing. 
And uh, there's uh, Pastor Lavanga down there. Him and Michael will be leading, helping to lead that if the Lord so chooses to lead us that way. And so thankful for what he's doing. If you go to the next slide, I have one prayer request. Well, there's some of our students in one of the seminaries. We've just had our first class down there in this Harvest Bible Institute. Isn't that precious to see? These brothers living for the Lord, training to preach the gospel in another country. That's so amazing. I look at that and it's just astounding to me. And I'm so thankful that I get to be a part of this journey with them. So if you all would just continue to pray for that. And lastly, one last prayer request here as uh, you probably won't hear from me for the next two weeks because I'm going to be in my monastery basically finishing up submitting this four-year project that I've been on, this dissertation. So uh, I know the people in my home group and the church home group and both places that I'm in sometimes have prayed for me in this four-year journey. And I can't express to you my appreciation enough. Um, the gentleman there I'm standing next to the flag is the gentleman I wrote this Ph.D. dissertation on. And uh, he's with the Lord now. I hate that he didn't get to see the end of it. He was so excited that someone had chosen to write a dissertation on him. And Dr. Geisler is with the Lord now. Uh, there's his friend and one of my teachers, Dr. Ryrie, who encouraged me to study and to go and do this uh, degree. And... Um, some days I didn't know whether to thank Dr. Ryrie or slap him for encouraging me to do this. Uh, both thoughts crossed my mind at a few times along this process. But I do want to thank all of you, especially those of you who have prayed for me in this process. I know that many a times uh, there's been many a nights working and studying and researching. Um, for about four years I've had to read over 500 books, about two books per week. And... Um, it's been a long journey, but for those of you that have prayed for me, thank you. I appreciate that beyond words, and I hope that everything the Lord has given me, I can give back to others in the ministry around the globe with Christian community. Now, having said that, let's get into our text today, James chapter 1. I'm going to read it to you. If you want to stand with me, you can. James chapter 1. The Bible says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, already some of you said, is he delusional? What in the world is he talking about? How in the world are you supposed to have joy in trials? Well, he's not delusional. This is something the Lord is doing. He's teaching us about how to have character growth. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, for which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You may be seated. Lord, as we look into this word this morning, encourage our hearts, bring up the areas that we need to address in our lives, tensions, problems, fears, wounds, 
emotional pains, even physical pains too are included, Lord. We ask you to meet with us in a special way and work with us as we walk through these teachings of Scripture. In the name of Jesus, all of God's people said, Amen. Now I'm going to tell you where we're going and then we'll go there and then when we finish up. So I'm going to kind of do something a little different with you. Where are we going? Well, I'm going to extend the invitation to you once and then again at the end because I want you to know what the Lord has in mind as we study his text this morning. The first thing I want to invite you to at the end of this message is, do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior or are you on your way to hell and damnation? Number two. Do you need to answer some call of God on your life? Are you running from it? Has God called you to be a preacher, evangelist, teacher, missionary, or some other calling that you've run from in your life? If you have, some of the things we're going to talk about may apply to you today. Number three, have you run from some conflict or problem or tension from someone? Maybe even someone in this fellowship that you're in tension with. If so, are you ready today to repair the altar as we'll talk about what Elijah did? And go through biblical reconciliation as God's way, as a living sacrifice? And number four, do you need physical healing today? That's the invitation I want you to be thinking about as we work our way through this text today. Roman number one of our outline, it'll be up on the screen here. God designs trials, not temptations, to grow your Christ-like character. God designs these trials in your life so that you can become more like Christ. I have there in your notes, it says Proverbs 16, 9 and Psalms 139, 16 especially talks about how God has ordained and set your days on earth and that he has those in his mind before you were ever born. Now think about that. Every trial and circumstance you face, God has already set that in place for you before you were ever even born. Why? Is God mean? No. Is God, is God unloving to me? How can he know? How could he do this to me? How could I have this problem surface in my life? Don't you know, God, what I'm going through? Yes, he does. He's omniscient. He has a plan and a purpose for you to go through that trial and that situation. What's the most important thing to God? Your momentary happiness? No. What's the most important thing to God? Your eternal glory. The character of Christ being magnified in you. He sees the big picture. We see the small picture. And we go through these trials, hurts, heartaches, and pains, and we get tunnel vision. We focus on that and see only that. Every trial is like an altar moment. In 1 Kings, the text I have for you, it said that he had to repair the altar. He had to take the old pieces of the altar and repair it. A trial is like an altar moment in your life. God has prepared it, and some of you came to that trial... And you thought about going through it, and then you said, nope, I'm going to go another way. And you've been walking on that other way year after 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 year, and guess, yes, again after another year. You run from the altar moment that God had designed for you. You and your situation that God designed you and your sin and weakness and the opposing forces, God meant for this to be a character growth moment in your life. A3 there in your outline. He wanted this to be a character moment of growth, a moment of character growth for you. We'll go to the next slide, but what we didn't do, we didn't stick with it. You were not a living sacrifice. Instead of staying on the altar of the trial that God had for you, you got off the altar. 
What would have happened if Christ had got off the altar moment when he was on the cross for us? Been disastrous. But some of you, you've walked away from the trial, and if it was a trial to bring you to salvation, it could mean your eternal damnation. Or if you say you're running from something, the experience, now you're wandering in the wilderness. You have no fire, you have no joy of God in your life, and maybe even some of you have hospital bills because you're physically sick from God trying to get your attention. I didn't say all sin leads to that, but I'm saying sometimes sin can bring about physical sickness. Not all the time, but sometimes. Please remember I said sometimes. I will be misquoted and be all over the internet worldwide. He said, no, I didn't. I said, sometimes. Number three, if you never return to the broken altar and you continue to go through this, you will remain sick, maybe even die. We'll talk about that shortly. You see, God is going to give his sacrifice one way or the other. You can be a living sacrifice for God and follow through and go through that trial that he has ordained and planned for you, or you can be a sacrifice that suffers another way unwillingly. We'll talk about that shortly. Go to the next slide. We see this parallels what happened in the Old Testament. The salvation theme, the Red Sea split open. Either you go through this trial and walk through the sea that's been open for you. I'm sure they had some fears and concerns. I would have been. I can't swim that well. <laughs> I'd have been thinking, boy, if this water comes back down, we're in deep trouble. <laughs> uh, I ask me sometime, I'll tell you about my days in the police academy and how difficult it was them trying to help me tread water. I can't tread water at all. I sink like a rock. It's terrible. It's a disaster if you put me trying to tread water. Well, I'd have been there saying, wait a minute, Moses. Where's the life jacket here? How am I supposed to? We go through this thing. What if this water falls back on us? You see, if they hadn't gone through that, they would have experienced destruction. We also see in the next slide here something else that it could have meant. Let's say you go through the trial, but then you back out of it. You've gone through the other side, but now you're not willing to go on to the end of it. You've started something, but you haven't finished it. Well, this would be a sanctification. Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You lose your power. You lose your joy. You lose your love for the Lord. You lose the power of Christ in your life. You see these people mumbling, groaning, and complaining up here. People, I'm bored. He keeps stepping on my ankles. Are we there yet? He's looking at me. <laughs> Sounds like your children are on your traveling trip, doesn't it? I don't know who put that together. It was a neat little thing. I found, I think they got the credit then online below, but I thought it was pretty neat because this describes our lives sometimes. We start out in the situation that God has designed for us, but then we don't complete the process. And then we lose vision, we lose focus, we lose passion, we lose our hope. And what happens? We turn inward and we start complaining, mumbling, groaning, griping, complaining, and it's negativity begins to take over our lives. I challenge you sometime. Take a test. Write down on a calendar how often in a day's time you, stay, you speak something positive versus how often you talk about what's negative. You'll be surprised at how negative we become sometimes. We lose our focus, we lose our vision, we lose hope. These are signs of wounding. And it's not always somebody else that's wounded us. You know, sometimes God will wound us to get our attention. Go to the next slide here, we see this. Israel's judgment and death in the wilderness. 
They continue to be disobedient. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me and uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. The land was already theirs. It was God's land he had already promised and said, I own this land, I'll give it to you. Jesus already purchased your salvation. He's already purchased your sanctification. It's there for you to have for the taking. But you know what you got to do? you got to go through the trials. And if you run from the trials, you'll be just like the children of Israel. You will face judgment and sometimes even die in the wilderness. You wind up living your life in such a way that's half-hearted, without any passion, without any zeal, without making a difference in the life of many other people's, maybe even not even your family, maybe even lose your children to the devil and Satan and the sinful world. You won't even be able to win your children to Christ. You won't even have enough power to lead them to Jesus. How sad and shameful that is. Well, look at it. I'm going to explain to you. I want you to look at this, how, what shows up in our lives in the next slide here. You see, there's what type of trials may have caused you to get to this point. This is not exhaustive. These are just some of the most common ones in people's lives. People wind up, they're wounded from ancestral line of Adam and Eve. Now, this is a very interesting thing. We're going to look at a video shortly on this. It's called... I'm going to say a big theological word here. I want you to try to say this after I say it. This will be funny. I hope we get this online. <laughs> All right. The word is traducianism. Traducianism. Everybody say that with me. Traducianism. <laughs> Somebody's still trying to say it out there. They're practicing. Good work. I think it sounded right. What does that mean? It means that you and I were seminally inside of Adam and Eve when they were created. He was the head of the human race. All, uh, the word Adam in Hebrew means human, humanity, mankind. You were inside Adam and Eve, so when they fell, you experienced the fall with them. So your genetic and spiritual substance or entity was there at the moment in Adam. And that's been passed down through the lineage. We see this spoken about, and we won't turn there, but you can write down these verses. Acts 17, 26, it says, From one man he made all the nations of mankind... In Hebrews 7, 9 through 10, it talks about Levi paying tithes while he was still in the loins of his ancestor. Meaning he was in a form of existence before he even existed. Now what does this do? Well, it means that sometimes ancestral sins can be passed down through the lineage. For those of you that haven't had children, this is very important. Your sins today can affect the children that you will have. Adam's sin affected all of us. We were born into it. And this also affects marriage relationships too. These are wounds and fears. This shows up in uh, the New English translation, a wonderful translation. It translates this passage here in Genesis 3 this way. This is pretty interesting. It says in Genesis 3, 16, 3, 15, 16, he's talking about the judgment on their sins. And he says to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain you will give birth to children. You will want to control your husband, and he will dominate you. These ancestral sins are passed down through the lineage, and it shows up in the way we relate to one another and the way we live. These are wounds that are passed down to us. Men naturally are passive. That's what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Eve was going over to the tree. Yes, it was a real tree there. The Bible in Genesis 1 is true, according to what God says, and uh, I don't care what your 
liberal, naturalistic, paganistic, atheistic, scientific professor said at that pluriversity that you attend, it's not really a university, it's a pluriversity, um, it is true there was an Adam that was there, unless Jesus lied. Adam was in the Garden of Eden, and his job was to lead and guide and protect, and he didn't do it. He became passive. Eve went over there, was deceived, took the fruit, came to him, and what Adam should have done he should have said, whoop, time out, lovely lady. I love you so much, I can't do this. Dear Jesus, help me out here. <laughs> Could you come back down and show up again? <laughs> like right now. <laughs> but he didn't do that. Why? Because he loved Eve more than he loved God at that moment. He was going to be passive. He didn't want conflict. He wanted peace. He was passive. And so he let her partake of the fruit. And then he said, I love you so much, I don't want to lose you. I'm going to go with you. And so there we have the, as my counseling professor used to say, there's the beginning of the battle of the sexes right there in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. The fall of mankind produced that. Men come forth, they're passive. Women, because they're afraid of their man failing, Adam failed. It's called muscle memory, genetic memory. It shows up. You're born with those dispositions. It doesn't cause that, but it is influences toward you. So we have passive men and women who are too afraid to allow the man to lead because the man failed to start with. And that's how we understand this. I'll show you some videos that even the scientific world is catching up to this idea of traducianism now. They understand that this has been passed down, and the sins and the pains and wounds of those that we did not even know, like physically see and talk to, those types of issues can be passed down to the generations in the lineage. The psychiatric field and the neuroscience field is starting to catch up on that now. And it's been something that's been true the whole time. The Bible's taught us this. Um, thankfully, the scientific world sometimes catches up with the biblical worldview. In this case, they are. We also see here wounds and fear being rejected, unloved by parents. Some of you have wounds and fears in your life because you can't even remember a time that your dad told you he loved you. You can't remember being affectionate with your mom. You don't have good warm memories of your family life, and that affects the way you do life today. These are trials that are affecting you, and some of you have avoided dealing with this. You've walked away from it. You're not willing to have the courage and faith to meet it. You're just walking in fear of it. It produces all kinds of problems. Number three, sometimes we get so afraid of the sinful world and worldly culture. I mean, it's everywhere. You can't live for Christ today without seeing the sinfulness of the world around us. And because of that, it sometimes affects us to the point that we become secluded. I call them neo-monastics. What is that? It means just like they're monks. They live in a seclusion. They won't relate to people. Uh, they don't have any ability to have any type of connections beyond their own little Christian huddle group. They're not willing to interact with the culture. They've secluded themselves from the culture. Well, you can't be a witness for Christ by doing that. You can't be an influence on the culture by doing that. You can't make a difference in our society by doing that. But that happens when we've become afraid. We've reversed the Bible verse that says, He who is in the world is greater, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We believe that he is in the world is greater than he who is in us. And that's a problem. Well, number four, wounds, fear, failure. People have compulsive disorders. They are afraid they failed and they didn't have grace. They were not met with grace. And so now they have a fear of 
failure and they have compulsive disorders, OCD, things of that nature. They're always trying to be per perfectionistic. My goodness, we see this with students sometimes, even in our seminaries. Uh, I had a student one time. I, uh, you know, I'm not one of those professors that will, um, you know, just sugarcoat something with someone. I'm still one of those old traditionalists who, if you do bad, I'm going to tell you you've done bad. It doesn't mean that we can't overcome it, but I'm not going to just, you know, they, some of these kids have they have phobias over red ink now. You write in red ink, and they have like snowflake meltdown moments now. It's it's, it's the <laughs> strangest thing. I, you know, they, 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 you know, I had a student one time actually say, could you use something other than, you know, uh, when I'd go online, I'd, you know, use a red marker inside the little, th I'm a technotard, so it took me forever to figure out how to do this. They wished I didn't ever touch technology, but, you know, you go in there and you write and put a little note, and, you know, I'd put red to mark my notes versus theirs, and uh, one student really literally said, that red triggers me. I'm like, you're not going to make it. <laughs> You know, there's other professions. We can help you. For, we got a job fair. We'll help you find another job. Um, you know, fear of failure. It, it, I gave him a C on something, which is average or so, something like that. And he went into an uproar. And I'm like, why are you so in uproar? I mean, just in a panic attack over it. And um, I was like, you know, um, you got a wife and kids. You're working a full-time job. You're going to seminary. I think it's pretty good that you've got to see and doing all those other things you have to do in your life. Balance is important. And there's nothing wrong with getting a C and doing all these other things. But he didn't understand that. He was just like compulsed. He could not have anything less than an A. And that's not healthy. Number five, wounds and fears of employers, other leaders in your life. You've been hurt by a leader of some sort. You know, they're actually now talking about persecution in America. They're talking about persecution not they're doing this was a neat little book by Harvey Hornstein called Brutal Bosses. Um, employers and supervisors that don't treat their people well anymore. That's a severe problem in our country, and it's getting worse. Um, that's a very bad situation. Um, it's not healthy, and it's not good. We also see wounds, fear, biblical truth, and the gospel. People see the truth, and because they won't go through with the truth, they revise the truth to try to make it acceptable to them. Number seven, wounds, fear of loss of love or relationship. This shows up so often in people who are in, you know, they, they have a terrible relationship, and then they become, they project those fears that they brought from that prior relationship into the current relationship, and they wreck and destroy that one too because they haven't dealt with what God wanted them to deal with from that first relationship. Maybe there's things that they haven't repented of. Maybe there's things and lessons they haven't looked at and learned and dealt with in their own life, and now they bring those to a second, third, fourth, fifth relationship that keeps on going, and they keep redoing the same thing over and over and over. And so it's a trial that God had designed for them, an altar that they got off of without completing the process. And now they're wandering in the wilderness of bad relationship after bad relationship, bad marriage after bad marriage, so on and so forth. Number, Roman number four. What are some signs and symbols of wounds and fears in my life? You say, how do I know that this has happened to me? Well, let's look at this. Here's some signs and symptoms that you can tell. See if any of these apply to you. Number one, profanity in language. You say, what? The Bible says, let no corrupt speech come from your mouth. Paul spoke of that. 
People who just normally use profanity over and over and over, it's just common vernacular, that's often a sign they've been wounded in their life. They have a fear or phobia or they have some type of imbalance in their life. And so everything's a crisis moment. You know, I understand if you're driving down the road and you have a wreck and you have an accident and you say it and then you do it. Some of you didn't get that. That happens. But when you're just normally speaking on a regular basis, and that's just your common vernacular, that's a sign that you've probably been wounded or injured by someone, and it's, you're always in crisis mode. Your language is always at the ultimate end of the spectrum. And so it's a sign you've been injured and you haven't dealt with those wounds of your past. And I want to say this to you that are our partners here in the well and confess Christ as Lord. You know, it's a shame sometimes watching some of the things that people write on social media. The filthy language that some of you use at times, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You put profanity up all over the internet and then confess Christ, you're doing a disservice to not only your relationship with the Lord, but to the people that you partner with in the gospel. You ought to repent of that and ask the Lord to forgive you and stop doing that. That's not good at all. Number two, people are hypercritical speech, excessive fault finding. You ever met somebody that can't find anything good? They're constantly, everything's negative. You talk to them and it's just fault finding, everything, everything. They have a negative comment to say about everything going on. They never have anything good to say. When the phone rings, you're like, oh, no. What has happened wrong in the world today? Excessive fault finding. Also, excessive focus on appearance and one's image. People that are just so focused on themselves. Um, it shows that they're trying to make up for something, some type of wound. They're trying to cover and they're trying to overcompensate for it. Oftentimes when I give, uh, encourage people whether, you know, wanting to uh, date someone, consider someone as a possible option, I tell them, uh, focus on some of these areas. This is one of them. Are they so consumed with themselves because they're trying to make up for some type of wound that they haven't dealt with in their life? That's a major red flag, and it will cause major trouble in the relationship. Number three, inability to pray and worship due to bitterness against others. We'll focus on this a little bit more toward the end, but Hebrews says this, Let no root of bitterness spring up in you that causes you to fall short of the grace of God. Some of you in here, you may have bitterness or resentment toward somebody in the fellowship or somebody in your family or somebody else in the family of God, and you haven't dealt with that. Maybe you can't deal with it with the person, but there's other ways that you can resolve this so that you don't influence your relationship with the Lord in a negative way. We see that also, number four, fear of failing God in life in general can lead to guilt and lack of peace. Some of you just don't have peace in your heart because you don't know Jesus and you haven't taken care of the void that's in your heart that only God and Christ can fulfill. And then some of you don't have peace in your heart because you've got sin there that you haven't confessed and dealt with. You got off of that altar that God had you in. And God is calling you to do like Elijah, to rebuild that altar, to revisit that issue in your life again, and to go through it this time, like Christ went through the cross and completed the process. And so you've been wandering in your wilderness of sin, lack of peace. Uh, this can even lead to physical and mental illnesses, even compulsive disorders. 
in your life, you become compulsively driven because you've got this lack of peace in your life, so you're fighting harder and harder at this or that in your life, your job, this uh, endeavor in life, and you're so focused on it because you're trying to avoid that other area of your life that keeps coming up in your mind. So you fill your life with a lot of other matters and a lot of other stuff to cloud out that in your heart that you haven't dealt with. And it can even lead to legalism where you're just living life and going through the motions and you do this and do that and do this and do that because you think that'll bring you peace with God. You're trying to soothe that conscience in you that's harming you. Well, we see number five. Despair and depression. Oh, my goodness. The world in America is on more depressant, antidepressants than I can even count. I'm terrible at math, and it's so high I can't count that high. The, stat, the statistics on that are astronomical. It's unreal the amount of medication that we are called the medication nation. I mean, we are just consumed with antidepressants now. And there's nothing wrong if there's definitely a need for that. And sometimes you can be so damaged you may have to be on that to the end of the time till you're healed in heaven. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you're trying to deal with some issue in your life that you haven't dealt with. And so now you're having to use medication to deal with a problem that you haven't dealt with that the Lord placed you before. And he said, if you'll walk through this and face this trial that I've got for you and go through, you'll experience the character growth on the other side of it, and you'll have peace again. But you refuse to do that. God's called you to a certain path, and you broke the altar. Instead of being a living sacrifice, now you're suffering and slowly, progressively dying day by day because you've wandered away from God. We see also, number six, fears of biblical truth in the gospel where false theologies are developed and their conscience is seared. This is where liberalism emerges. You round off the edges of the Bible and the truth because you don't like what it says. Everybody knows um, um, my theology. I'm from the Reformed Evangelical background. Uh, technical, I use the word read, Reformed Evangelical, Amarond, and Dispensationalist. Some of you have no idea what that means. That's okay. But let me explain it to you this way. Sometimes in our tradition, because we believe so strongly in the sovereignty of God, we'll neglect evangelism and we'll round it off and say, oh, well, you know, we're not really responsible if somebody goes to heaven or not. Well, if that's so, then why in Ezekiel and in Acts and... Ezekiel and Paul say, talk about the blood on our hands for sinners that we have not warned with the gospel. We fall into extremes. We don't like that part of it. We don't want to take responsibility that God has commissioned us to be witnesses for Him. Paul said, I'm not guilty of the blood of anybody on my hands. He shared the gospel. Every time God called him to share the gospel, he did. I, ha I can't say that. I haven't done that. One of the greatest regrets of my life was a guy that I worked with. Um, we, were in, we were mechanics together. He taught me so much about uh, working on cars. I grew up with a race car driver. My mom's brother, Uncle Roy, uh, worked on cars my whole life. I love working on them. I was planning on going into NASCAR and working in uh, race cars my whole life before the Lord called me to teach and study the Bible. And I still love doing that. And, uh, you know, this guy I worked with his uh, wonderful teacher, taught me so much about cars and Worked with him, worked with him, worked with him, worked with him. Even went to NASCAR. We had dinner with Jeff Gordon and just had a wonderful time with him and um, all of that. And one day, standing in a shop, 
my phone rang, and they said, hey, Keith, you better come get this call. I go and answer the call, and they said, Keith, I need to share something with you. I said, what is it? Uh, it's about your friend, um, we'll call him John today. It's about your friend John. I said, what's wrong with him? Well, he's going through a divorce, as you know, yes. Well, he took his own life, and he's dead. And I never shared the gospel with him. All of that time with him. And I never sat down and talked to him about who Jesus was. And I don't believe he was a believer unless something changed at the end. Now, I could round off the edge of the Bible and just say, oh, well, you know, God is God, and, you know, if they're going to save, if God's going to save them, he'll elect them and save them, predestined, so on and so forth. But the problem is I have that passage in Ezekiel, and I have that statement from Paul that I have to deal with. I did not witness to him, and that's a part of my error and my sin that the Lord exposed in my own life. And I've tried to do the best I can from that point forward. Share the gospel with anybody that I possibly can when the Lord calls me to do so or when I have the opportunity to do so. But sometimes we'll use our own head knowledge to round off the sharp edges of the truth of the sword to make our soothing conscience to soothe ourselves. Well, the other extreme, too, extreme Armenians, they do the same thing, too. You know, uh, Clark Pennock started the ideology that's circled around our globe now. Uh, John Randall and um, Clark Pennock and those guys. Open theism. Well, he couldn't rectify the fact that he, had a, he was going blind in his life. God really couldn't have known that. That's too hard for him to accept, you see. God had to learn about this, too, just like I did. And so they developed the idea that God is learning and growing just like you and I are. It's called open theism. My professor, Dr. Geisler, called it neotheism. It's not the classical view of God of the Bible. People who are in the field of annihilation do this. Someone they love dies, goes to hell, and that weight of the idea that somebody's going to be in hell forever is too hard to handle. It's too much. And so they round off the edges of that and say hell's only... Temporary. They'll burn up and cease to exist. Of course, you remember Brandon and I had a debate with them on that subject here, right here on this stage. Many of them in that movement make those statements because of that. Well, number seven here, we'll move on. Physical disease and bodily ailments. Sometimes we're having sicknesses in our life because we have wandered off into the wilderness and God is using these to help get our attention. He's trying to speak to you through the problems you're facing now. And he's calling you back and saying, return to me. Trust me. Go through this trial that I've set before you. I will walk with you through it. The calling of God on your life, I will walk with you through this. I walked with my son Jesus through the trial on his cross. I will go with you. I promise you I will not forsake you. I am with you to the end of the age as he promised. Trust me. Dear saint, trust me. I'm with you. I'm going to go with you through this. But instead we choose to wander through the wilderness. And the weight of God on us begins to affect our health. And we have physical problems. I've got these next set of quotes up here from Dr. Stanley. I would encourage you, if you want to read a good book about emotions, I can't share everything that's in this book, of course, but this is a great one. 
by Dr. Stanley, a great Bible teacher. I've admired him for many years. Um, about emotions. Confront the lies and conquer with truth. And I'll read this quote up here with you. I begin with the emotion of fear because I believe that the origin of every other negative response we face is some kind of anxiety. After all, fear is an uneasy feeling of dread, like an alarm that goes off in us. When this apprehension persists over a long period of time, we subconsciously build up defenses around those weaknesses or vulnerable areas. Next slide. And the safeguards we construct, unfortunately, cause other problems to arise. Yes, they do. When we think about adverse emotions and we examine their deepest roots, most often find that anxiety forms the foundations of those destructive feelings. Go to the next slide. He says, greed is based on fear of not having enough or missing out on something important. Rejection of loneliness are both rooted in the concern that we will not be accepted, that we will be abandoned or forsaken. Pride is founded on the fear that we will be found unworthy or incapable. Discouragement is a fear that hope is lost or that failure is the only possible outcome and is caused by lack of confidence or a sense of inadequacy. Despair is based on worries of what's occurred in the past and what might happen. Jealousy is the dread of that we will lose, what we desire that we will not measure up when compared to others. Anger is caused by anxiety that we may not get our way. It should be an R. Or being treated disrespectfully or someone has wronged us will not be chastised adequately. They're not punished enough. I'll have to add more to this. You know, God, you didn't really punish him enough. I'll add my two cents to this and help out. That vengeance. Can you see how much fear is the basis to negative emotions we all feel? So much agony we experience in life caused by anxieties. It's the enemy's most effective tool for tempting us to sin, prolonging our bondage, and keeping us separated from God. Keeps us wandering in the wilderness. Keeps us working in a way that is antagonistic toward the grace of the Lord and the Spirit's work in our life. Well, how bad can it get? We'll look at the next slide. I want to show you a few things. Can lead us to being a defeated life filled with negativity. Can lead to relationship problems. Over and over and over when we see constant trouble in relationships, it's oftentimes because the people haven't learned how to deal with certain emotions, and they've let those emotions come out in unhealthy ways. A powerless life with few rewards in heaven. The Lord warns you, you will not have great reward in heaven. You may make it to heaven, but you won't have much to show for it when you get there. How sad of a life is that to live when the victory is yours and the great reward that God could have for great fruit, and you could hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You could hear those words. And yet you live a powerless life because you're wandering in the wilderness. Now this is that word I mentioned to you, the traducing curse. Now I'm going to play this video clip here, and I want you to see how science is catching up with our understanding of how sins of a prior generation can show up in the next generation. If we'll play video number one, you'll see what I'm talking about. to talk to you today about how trauma and resilience cross generations and it's really the question of whether we are affected by things that happen in previous generations to our parents and our grandparents and this is of course a topic that has received a tremendous amount of attention in the last few years and if we are affected by um, things that happen in prior generations the question is how are we affected 
Do we inherit memories of a parental trauma? Do we inherit a type of fear of the environment or maybe symptoms like nightmares or irritability or depression that are characteristic of trauma survivors? Um, and if we do inherit those things, do those effects prevent us from responding effectively to the environment? I think it should keep going just a little bit there. I'm not sure. It may not have gotten all on there. I'm not sure. I would like to talk. That's fine. I'll explain to you there. She talks about like the the video of the. There we go. Keep going. Function, and basically there are many different types of epigenetic marks on the DNA or in the DNA environment. DNA is wrapped around these little things, blue things called histones or DNA curlers, and all of the genetic information is wound tight and packed up in the cell nucleus of every single cell, all your genetic information. We came to learn about the importance of parental PTSD. And that is that Holocaust offspring were more likely to have PTSD, depression, and anxiety if they had a parent with PTSD. And so uh, my skills in science have been stretched as I've studied this about epigenetics and the way the muscle memory, we call it, that's an easy way for you to understand it because I have to make these things simple for me to understand it too. Uh, genetic memory, muscle memory, DNA-coded memory, as she was talking about there, Rachel, Dr. Rachel Yehuda at Mount Zion Institute. Um, it's a phenomenal field showing that sins of prior generations or wounds or fears or struggles of prior generations can surface in later generations. So for those of you that hope to have children and plan on those things, it's important to understand this because if you're walking in some type of sin and you're harboring some type of sin, that type of sin could show up in the succeeding generations, including your children or grandchildren. It's called the Traducian Curse. That's very, very sobering thought of how these things can be passed down through the lineage. Remember, sin was passed down to us from Adam. And it has been passed down to us from the very beginning. This is science starting to catch up with what we already see in Romans chapter 5. That Adam was the patriarchal head of the human race. And when he sinned, the entire human race has been imputed and judged and has carried that sin even into conception and birth. We're working on maybe a debate soon with a theologian, Dr. Troy. Hopefully we'll get that worked out where we're going to debate the doctrine of original sin, whether or not children are born in sin or not. And, of course, I take the position that we are. We come into the world corrupted and tainted with sin. And the choices that you and I make today, especially if you're going to be having children in the future, that has implications for that. Well, let's move on. Uh, see number five up there. I'm talking about physical sicknesses. Well, next slide. How bad can this get, Doc? You ever went to the doctor and they tell you some bad news? Well, I've told you a lot of bad news so far. I understand. And some of you are wondering, man, he needs to take his own advice about negativity. This whole sermon's been nothing but negative. And uh, I don't want to leave you with that, of course. But I do want to tell you how bad it can get. So I got just a little bit more negative news. And then we're going to go to the positive side about how we can correct this and how we can resolve this. And give you an opportunity to express faith in the Lord's goodness and his love and his atonement to help you through this. Well, how bad can it get, Doc? Well... 
1 John 5, 16 through 17 talks about a sin and a death. I'll read that for you here. It's very interesting. It's one of the most unusual texts in the entire Bible. This is what the Bible says. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Good. Uh-oh. Not good. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. You see, God is going to get his sacrifice. He's sovereign. You can be a living sacrifice and go through the trial that God has put before you, or you can throw your hands up to God and be obstinate, and at some point cross a deadline with God. Only God knows when that is. No one else does, and he'll communicate it to you. We see this happening in Scripture at various times. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to God. It must have been a deadline for them. Boom. Took their life. We see this in the Corinthian man in 1 Corinthians 5, living in a very pagan sexual immorality lifestyle. And Paul said, Turn this man over to Satan so his flesh may be destroyed and his soul saved on the day of the Lord. Mm. God will get his sacrifice. If he has to sacrifice your flesh in order to bring you home to heaven, to sanctify you, for you to get through the other side of it, he'll do it. Why? Because God's ultimate purpose is not your temporary, momentary, earthly happiness. God's ultimate purpose is your Christ-like character in this because he, you are his child that represents him. He paid for you. He bought you. He owns you. Your life is his. You are a slave to him. You have been purchased by the bloodshed of Jesus. And if you choose to continue to wander in the wilderness and not deal with the trials that God has established for you, you can eventually cross a deadline. I would encourage you sometime to look up online. You can watch the sermon. I had the honor of listening to him preach and teach as a very young child. I don't know if my mom's here or not. She may be here. Um, uh, yes, yes, yeah, it's hard to find her back there. She's just short. Hey, Mom. Mom and dad took me to church growing up, and um, I got to hear this man, J. Harold Smith, preach this sermon. I have the booklet in my office called God's Three Deadlines. I encourage you to look this up online. You want something that you talk about haunted houses and scares and stuff like that? Well, if you want something to really make the hair stand up on your head, listen to J. Harold Smith preach a sermon on God's Three Deadlines. I can still see him as probably, I don't know, I've been preaching now 30-something years. That's pretty amazing. It's more amazing now because I'm only 29 years old. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, I remember as a little kid listening to him preach this sermon. And uh, it was amazing how he articulated in his own life watching God work in lives where they would resist God to the point that eventually, sometimes they'd lose their own life. What a sad reality. And it doesn't have to be that way. We see these sins unto death. We also see the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 30, it talks about the partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthily way. It says some of you are sick because you've taken of this unworthily. And not only that, some of you are asleep. You've died. I remember when um, a bad situation, you know, sometimes God's people get into a cantankerous situation. And down in Texas, you know, Texas, they, you know, you understand. And so some believers had a dispute at uh, Criswell College. They had dismissed one of the presidents down there. He was doing a good job. And Dr. Stanley didn't like what he did. And uh, he went down there and spoke to the board. 
And uh, old Dr. Stanley's bony little finger, he's got this big long finger, you know. I'd hate for him to point it at me. <laughs> and uh, he pointed at that chairman of the board of trustees, that university or college down there, and said, I'm telling you right now, there's people in the graveyard at First Baptist Atlanta who've done what you've done, and you better repent before God takes your life. The man trembled, and they reversed the decision, put the president back in place. <laughs> you see, you can partake of the Lord unworthily in such a way that eventually God will take your life. And it was happening there in Corinth. And the physiology behind this, you'll see in this next slide here, uh, this is a helpful book. He's a medical doctor. I don't endorse everything he said. He's a medical doctor, not a theologian. You have to make those qualifications because, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. But anyway, he does a good job on this here. It's called Deadly Emotions. These are things that these studies have shown us how certain heart disease and um, heart attacks and um, death rates from people who are stressed and not dealing with their emotions in a healthy way can cause you death and sickness. Breaks down your stress, uh, breaks down your immune system. Stress causes people to lose their immunity, which then leads to cancer and other things like that. It talks about how anger and hostility lead to hypertension and coronary artery disease. Resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness, and self-hatred can lead to autoimmune disorders, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, panic attacks, repressed anger, tension, migraine headaches, chronic back pain, TMJ, fibromyalgia, things of that nature. And this book goes into the details of why handling our emotions are proper. And again, I say this to you because some of you, God, has put a trial in your life. You broke the altar. You got off the altar because your emotions overwhelmed you and you didn't have faith and hope and confidence and courage and conviction to go through the trial. You got off the altar. And you're going to have to go back to it at some point or face these types of problems. Why? Because God is ultimately concerned not about your earthly temporal happiness at this moment. He's concerned about your holiness. He's concerned about you representing His Son, Jesus, who lives inside of you. And He loves you enough He will do everything, even to the point of taking your life, to make you holy. We'll go to the next slide here. So what is the divine prescription? You say, Finally, good gracious, Keith, you've just wore me out. I've had nothing but, I've already, I think I've got PTSD after this sermon. I'm already just stressed to the max and you've just overloaded me. I was looking in my pocketbook trying to find some medicine to take in here without you seeing me doing it. Whew. Finally we get here. Well, let's look at this. Number one, grace. Replacing your fear of the world with fear in God. And faith in the power of the blood of Christ for salvation. First of all, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is a first step for you. If you go to counselors or psychiatrists or psychologists for counseling, if they don't lead you to the understanding that you need salvation, they don't understand the ultimate hope. They don't understand the real ultimate cure of the matter that you're dealing with. Regeneration is the first step to having the power to overcome your sins and your struggles and fears and wounds that have led you into the problems you're facing. Uh, it gives power and courage. You must transfer your fear of the trial to a fear of God. You see, fear is not necessarily a bad thing. It's where you place your fear. That's the ultimate issue. 
I remember years ago, one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite theologians, he's a Baptist pastor, preacher, evangelist, Dr. Paige Patterson. He's president of Southern Baptist Convention for years, president of Criswell College, president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary, president of Southwestern Seminary. He'll probably be president of something else before, he, before he's done. And uh, he's a good old Texan, country fellow like me, loves to hunt and fish and think the world of him. He was one of my teachers and professors. And going through the controversy of the liberals, dealing with liberalism in the Southern Baptist Convention for many years, from 1955 or 60 up to about 1995 or so, they had professors that didn't believe the Bible, didn't believe Jesus resurrected from the grave, didn't believe in the devil. I mean, all kinds of mess. It was just horrible. And um, he was calling this out, talking about they didn't believe the Bible to be true. He was traveling all over the nation. Even evangelists like Dr. John R. Rice was working with him and sort of the Lord newspaper, and this was disseminating all over the nation. It was, as he called it, a shootout at the Amen Corral. And... Uh, they called him to a big meeting one time, and they said, Dr. Patterson, if you'll just grow quiet and not speak about this anymore, we'll give you any position you want in the convention. The salary you want, retirement, you can have anything you want. We've got the legal documents drawn up. Just sign your name right here and get quiet about this. You're causing too much controversy in the Southern Baptists. You're disrupting churches. You're disrupting pay, people getting paid. Salaries are on jeopardy. It's a whole big mess. Just be quiet. Sign this. Go home. You and your wife will be taken care of. So you want me to sign that document and go quiet about truth? Well, we wouldn't say it that way, but, you know, just sign this document and leave this controversy alone. He said, I'm afraid. I can't do that. Afraid? No, it's a legal document. We've got all the lawyers here. It's, it's, it's legal. It's legit. Name your salary. Is it the money? How much money do you want? No, sir. Not the money. What are you afraid of? There's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, we're not, it's, this is real. We're not trying to trick you. Sir, you misunderstand. It's not you that I'm afraid of. What are you afraid of? God. Because I have to give an answer to him. And I'm not going to sign that because I fear God more than I fear you. Amen? You see, we have to transfer our fears from our wounds and our fears of the earthly sphere to our fear of God. If you don't believe that, read Proverbs 1, read Psalms 1 about the fear of God. If you want to make progress to get through the trials of life, your fear for God must be greater than your fear of the trial itself. That happens when you begin to focus on who God is and His righteousness. And transfer your fears to that. Well, there's something else, who? Number two, guidance. Next slide up here. Willingness to be led by godly teachers or pastors and or ruling elders. You see this little foundation. This is from Dr. Charles Swindoll. Good little chart here um, that somebody put together, and I thought it would be good to use here. You have the Lord Jesus at the bottom, apostles and prophets, and then evangelists and pastors and teachers and teachers. Um, and what we're doing is trying to teach you, to equip you, to help you grow up in your faith, to face the trials in a way that honor God, and to get through on the other side that makes you a better person, that you can then turn in part and help someone else be a better disciple, and it's a domino effect. And that's what we're trying to do. But you must be willing to be led. Um, we're going to play video number two here, Dr. Goet Frick. Here and um, before we play this, you may remember Dr. Goetfrick. He helped debate, uh, moderate the debate for us. Brandon and I did, and I called him. I said, "I want to do this short little video with you." And uh, he said, uh, "Is this something for you and Brandon's church?" I said, "Yes." And he said, "You're not going to get me in an international conflict again, are you?" 
I said, I don't think so. I think this is a little more tame. And uh, we'll play this video clip him about discipleship. He wrote this book here, and he did a wonderful job about explaining the growth phases in the Bible, biblical discipleship. There's four steps of growth. You'll see here he talks about it in this short little clip. them as groups or categories of people. He uses little children, which I call infants in the book, just for clarification, children, young people, and then fathers. And this seems to match our just our human physical growth experience so well. We have infants, children, young people, which would be probably teenagers and young adults, and then you know parents or, or older adults. And he uses four descriptions to tell us about what those, that category or those groups of people should be expected to know or understand. Um, infants or little children, he just says, you know the father. You know, what do babies know? They know their parents' faces and voices maybe, and not much else. Children, he says, you know that your sins have been forgiven. That's more than infants can understand, right? So they're starting to understand concepts of sin, you know, right and wrong, good and evil consequences. Young people, he says, you have the word in you. You have won some victories, some spiritual victories, which means it's not now that they just understand right and wrong and consequences, but they actually have some wins under their belt. You know, parents love to see their teenagers and their young adult children finally get some wins under their belt in, in the physical life, and it's the same thing in our spiritual lives. And then fathers, he says, fathers, you have known him who is from the beginning. You really know God. You really have a depth of understanding of who God is, and he calls them fathers, which means that they're starting to reproduce the faith yeah. in, in yeah. succeeding generations. And that's our goal for you, to become fathers and mothers, to help reproduce disciples in the faith. But to do that, you got to go through the altar of the trial as a living sacrifice and go through the trials that God has put before you. And some of you are running from some of these things. Some of you know some of the things the Holy Spirit's put on your heart today that you've run from, you've not dealt with. And if you have dealt with it, you haven't dealt with it, with it in a biblical way. And now you're suffering for it. Uh, number three of the next slide here, we see this. Truth. Healing sometimes occurs by God's immediate sovereign discretion. I want you to see this pastor who had lost his voice, and he was from North Carolina, and he was teaching a Sunday school class with a special mic set up for him. And during his actual, you're going to hear it. He is healed by the grace of the Lord while he is teaching. It's an amazing video to hear what happened to him. Sometimes God does this, and then we pray that that happens to you. It can happen. We'll see you in this video.
say that, every single person will always be healed because Jesus died on the cross is a misinterpretation of scripture. Not true, won't work. Isaiah 53 doesn't talk about physical healing. I'm sorry, that's just not the context. And to impress that there causes a misinterpretation of scripture. That's wrong. On the other hand, to say that, since we don't have anything after the book of Acts, that miracles ended at the book of Acts and they never happen again is equally as wrong. Because you have put God in a box both ways. And he doesn't want to be in the box. So, the psalmist says, I'm excited. Bless the Lord, O my soul. One of his benefits is he heals all of my diseases. And then in verse 4 he says, and he redeems my life from the pit. Now I like that verse just a whole lot. I have had and you have had in times past pit experiences. Hear the voice changing. We've both had, we've all had times when our life seemed to be in a pit, in a grave. And we didn't have an answer <laughs> for the pit we find ourselves in. And I don't understand this right now. I'm but overwhelmed at the moment. I'm not quite sure what to say or do. And he goes on to thank the Lord for his miraculous grace. What an amazing sight to see. See, that's God's love. He wants to heal. Sometimes he'll do it miraculously, but sometimes he wants to do it through other steps of your faith. You to face that trial he's put before you. He loves you. He wants to see you healed. He wants to see these wounds, heartaches, griefs, trials that you've walked away from that have left you with no joy in your life, that have left you with no fire, no power in your life. He wants to see those healed. Number four of your outline, then we're going to go to one last video and then we're going to close. We've been going about an hour. It's about 12 o'clock. We're going to finish up in just a few minutes here. Sometimes it takes time. Healing by truth takes work, education, training, and community discipleship. I am so blessed that many of the people that work with me in doing different things that we do here in the ministry here, um, um, different people that have joined us in doing marriage coaching and life counseling and those types of things uh, from Phil and Julie and Carrie and Rebecca and Dwight and Brandy soon and then the other guys that have joined around to help. It's such a blessing to be a part of community discipleship. Sometimes your growth isn't going to be like that instantaneous, but if you'll put your hand to the plow, we'll help keep the plow steady and we'll help you get to the other side. Community discipleship is part of the process for you to get back on that altar, to rebuild it, and to get to the other side. 
But we can't put your hand to the plow. You must. You must be willing. Some of you got pains, deep wounds from your past. Those can be resolved and healed. If you'll put to the hand of the plow, we'll walk beside you and help you plow. We'll help you dig up those hard, rocky, stony roots in your life. But you must be willing. Lastly, number five, faith to confess or ask. Sometimes the first step to immediate healing or progressive healing occurs by confession or asking in faith for help. What does a mature person look like when they face a trial? Can you show me that, Keith? Yeah, I can. I'm going to show you this video clip. When this video clip's done, I want the musicians to come, and then I think Robert and Mark are going to come, and we're going to be here. We're going to ask if you want to be anointed with oil, prayed over, we're going to be here to help you with this. If you want to come and ask to be prayed over some type of lingering problem in your life, we're going to be here to do that. But I want you to see this person in this video clip lost his brother to an unjustified killing. This is in a courtroom situation. Now, I can't talk about the things that I see in my courtroom, really. So I decided to share another courtroom scenario. I've seen this happen in real life, and I've seen this happen. This was real. You want to talk about mature character? Here's a man in the trial of his life as far as the circumstance that he's in. He's lost his brother to an officer that did an unjustified killing. And I want you to watch the grace of God at work in this man's life. That he gets through this trial by the power of God. Play this video clip here, number five. Go to God with all what, all the guilt, all the things, the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I 
I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes. Here is biblical reconciliation before your eyes. That is the gospel. That is the atonement of Jesus at work. That somebody that has caused you that much pain, that much grief, that much agony, that by the power of Jesus' bloodshed for you, that you can do what he did. That's called grace. That's called walking in Christ. Some of you are bitter at toward people. Some of you had trials in your life and you're still holding on to them. You can go ahead and start playing. You've carried that weight for years walking in the wilderness. You've faced physical problems from it. Your health has deteriorated from it. And God is saying today, confess that. You don't have to walk in the wilderness anymore. All of you, if you'd stand. God is saying to you today that just like what you saw there, that agony, that pain, that resentment, that bitterness, those wounds, those fears, those roots that have caused you bitterness, they can be released today. You can start a new path walking by rebuilding that altar today as symbolized by maybe even coming to this altar and saying, I'm going to do like he's Elijah. I'm going to repair that altar. And I'm going to say, God, whatever that trial is that you placed in my life that I run from, I'm going to go through it. I'm going to face those fears. I'm going to face those pains. I'm going to have that difficult conversation with someone that I need to have that difficult conversation with I'm not going to run from it anymore Lord you've called me to this mission Lord you've called me to this task you've called me to this purpose and I've been running from it I'm not going to run anymore I'm yours I want to do your will is that your heart today if it is come meet with us Mark, Robert we're going to be down here front to meet with you come do business with God